Let me begin by asking how many of you have never been to Moody Church? Could I see your hands, please? That's scary. It's not necessary to visit Moody Church to go to heaven. Well, why take a chance? I hope that sometime, if you can't go to your own church, you know that we do stream live all over the world, 10 o'clock Chicago time, whatever that is, it's in real time, wherever, whatever time zone you may be in. Sometimes I get my mings fixed up and I begin backing talkwards, so I have to straighten it out a little bit. And uh, if you were to pray for us, we would deeply appreciate it. I know that we had some books for sale. All those, of course, are gone, but uh, you can get them on Amazon or you can call our media number. And thank you so much to BBN and uh, Mr. Lowell Davey, who is such a good supporter and promoter of our own ministry. And if he, of course, is the head of NBN, uh, that is to say, I said NBN, but I meant BBN. MBN is the Moody Business Network. At my age, sometimes you get a little bit confused. But what a delight it is to be here, to see this large crowd here. We're going to learn some things together, and we hope that uh, you're in for the ride. You can fasten your seatbelts. I will take you up very slowly. We'll bring you back, hopefully, without a crash landing. It's my responsibility to speak, it's your responsibility to listen, and I've been praying that we shall end at the same time. (laughs) There was a janitor in a small church who was speaking to a parishioner about the furnace, but somebody who overheard the conversation thought that he was talking about the pastor. What the janitor said was, the blower still works, but the fire's gone out. Well, I know one thing, that's not true of your pastor, and I hope tonight that the fire has not yet gone out. My topic tonight is Jesus versus Muhammad. Now, you've never been to Moody Church, but if you were ever to come to Moody Church, you'd find that it is one of the most beautiful churches in all of the United States of America. It is actually patterned after the Church of Holy Wisdom in Istanbul. Its architecture is Byzantine and Romanesque. Gorgeous church. I want you to imagine Moody Church or your own church, whether it's this one or some other church. I want you to visualize it. And all of the chairs have been taken out, the pews are gone, and there are rugs from one end to the other, and your church has become a mosque. Now, if you were in Chicago and you knew Moody Church, you know that very probably Moody Church would have four minarets because the number of minarets oftentimes indicates the prominence of the mosque. And because Moody Church is well known in the Chicago area, it has prominence. And Muslims come from all over Chicagoland to pray at the church that was at one time a church but now is a Muslim mosque. Last summer, Rebecca and I had the opportunity of traveling to Turkey. We were in the Church of Holy Wisdom, and we also visited the seven churches of Revelation, the churches that are mentioned in the New Testament, to whom Jesus personally dictated letters. We discovered that the churches, of course, do not exist. 
Maybe they exist in small Bible studies under the radar, but Islam systematically crushes Christianity no matter where it goes. And so the question that I'm trying to answer tonight is one that was on my mind while we were there, namely, what do these dead, non-existent churches have to say to the American church? And maybe also we'll throw in the question of what they say to the churches today in Europe. What do they have to say to us? For openers, I'd like you to take your Bible, if you would please, and turn to the book of Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, where Jesus dictated these letters. You'll notice that uh, John has a vision of the risen, triumphant Jesus. It says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the description goes on. And then we find at the end of the chapter that the lampstands are the seven churches. I begin there tonight because Jesus has an interest as to what happens in our churches. Jesus goes up and down the aisles and he observes our worship. He observes how much we give, how much we don't give. He observes the attitude of our hearts, whether we are singing simply out of a sense of duty or whether or not our hearts are in tune with him and we worship him, Jesus finds the church to be the apple of his eye and he is interested in the church. The church is number one on Jesus Christ's priorities in terms of where we are at. But what does the non-existence of the church in Turkey and elsewhere teach us? If you were to take a map of the Middle East and you look at Iraq and Iran and all of those Middle East countries, you would know historically that at one time they were at least nominally Christian. And today throughout the Middle East, hundreds if not thousands of churches, including the land of Egypt, thousands of churches are now mosques. What does that bit of history tell us today? I want to begin by saying that we should not view Muslims as our enemies, but we should view them as people who are victims of a very oppressive religion. In Chicago, where many of the taxi cabs are Muslims, I asked one recently, now if you were to convert to Christianity, what should happen to you? He said, I should be put to death. I said to him, who should kill you? And he said, well, he didn't know whether or not it was his family or someone else. All that he knew is that if he converted, he should die. Now, what we need to understand is that if Islam gave up that teaching, just like someone on Al Jazeera television said on one occasion, if we gave up the teaching that those who convert to Christianity should be put to death, if we gave that up, we might find a mass exodus from Islam. And I really do think that that's what they would discover. I think one woman in Islam said it all when she said, I'm oppressed, we are victims of this religion, but what choice do I have? Let that question burn into your soul. What choice do they have? Wow. 
Maybe you are here as a Muslim, or you may be listening by way of CD or any other means of communication. If so, I'm glad that you're here because we care about you. We are caring about you, but we're also caring about the impact of your religion in the United States and around the world. What I'd like to do now is to give you seven or eight lessons. We might even make it nine, depending on how quickly things go, and I won't keep you too long. There was a man who was preaching a very long sermon, and uh, someone got up and walked out, just like I, and and the pastor pointed him out, just like I would. I'd say, why are you leaving if you get up and leave? (laughs) Person shouted back, I'm going to get a haircut. The pastor said, why didn't you get a haircut before you came in here? He said, when I came in here, I didn't need one. (laughs) So I won't keep you too long, but seven, eight, or nine quick lessons on what we have to learn. Lesson number one, uh, the existence of any church, and thank you for taking notes. Those of you who are on the front, front row on earth is front row in heaven. It's great to see you. which says something about those who are in the back row. (laughs) Lesson number one, the existence of any church or group of churches cannot be taken for granted. The existence of any church or group of churches cannot be taken for granted. Come with me to the Holy Church of Holy Wisdom in Istanbul, Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom. Just think, dedicated in... 535. The Emperor Justinian gives the opening speech and says, O Solomon, I have outdone thee, indicating that the church is even greater than Solomon's temple. And what a church it is. It exists for 900 years as Christendom's largest church. It's Eastern Orthodox, but Eastern Orthodoxy has a high Christology. Christ is honored there. 1453, Islam captures Constantinople. The Turks come and they capture Constantinople and it is turned into a mosque. 5,000 people are impaled, one of the most horrid ways to die. People run into the church thinking, surely God will protect us, but God did not protect them. And right in the church, horrible massacres took place. Then for 500 years, that church is a mosque. And about in 1923, instead of it being a mosque, it was, it was then designated as a museum, so you and I could go in as well. But here we have a church that is dedicated to Jesus, a mosque, now a Muslim center. Perhaps many of you have visited Hagia Sophia, the Church of Holy Wisdom, as a reminder of the fact that Islam has supplanted the church. Now, our Muslim guides were very kind and they were very thoughtful, but one of them, whom I had for an entire day in Istanbul five years ago, made it very clear that just like Christianity overcame paganism and showed its superiority, in the very same way Islam overcomes Christianity, wins a triumph, stamps out Christianity, and shows its superiority. In Islam... The militaristic triumph over the church indicates the superiority and the truthfulness of the Muslim religion. 
So considering what has happened throughout the Middle East, considering what is happening in Europe today in places like England, it is really true, given the demographics that we can't go into tonight, that Europe is basically over, so to speak. It is probably true that they are predicting that Notre Dame in Paris will become a mosque, eventually the Vatican as well, simply because Europeans are not having children, the Muslims have big families. The death of European freedoms is inevitable. It is happening even today. So the first thing that we have to realize is that the existence of any church or group of churches cannot be taken for granted. You do not know what will happen in America, say, in the next 50 years. You and I can't predict it. Who knows what your church will someday become? Let's go to a second lesson, and that is that compromising churches, this doesn't talk about Islam directly, we'll get to that in a few moments, but compromising churches are weak churches. Compromising churches are weak churches. Come with me to the seven churches, and let's go to Sardis. Sardis is the church about which Jesus said, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. If you were in Sardis, you would discover that right up against a church, and it isn't an early church, it's a church that goes back to the third century, in ruins, of course. When you come there, right next to the church, however, there's a pagan temple. I mean, by right next to, I mean three feet apart. There are two different ways that you can interpret that. One way would be to say that the church said, we want to be right next to where where the darkness is the greatest. Here is a pagan temple. Let's build a church right next to the pagan temple. But there's another way we could interpret that. Maybe the church actually felt at home next to the pagan temple. Maybe the church had so absorbed paganism that it didn't feel a great deal of dissidence to be right there next to the pagan temple. When you look at the history of these churches to whom Jesus dictated these letters, you discover that oftentimes there was moral compromise, and Jesus already pointed it out in the letters that he wrote. If you need a refresher course, reread them tonight or sometime tomorrow. And so what you have is these compromising churches, moral compromise, political compromise. I told you that Justinian gave the opening speech when Hagia Sophia was built. What in the world is an emperor doing building a church, please tell me? It's all based on what is known historically as Constantinianism, all going back to Constantine when he conquered Rome in 312. He actually began to appoint bishops. And that influence of Constantine goes to Europe today. I was having lunch with the man who previously, 10 years ago, was the pastor of All Souls Church in London. I said, how did you become the pastor of All Souls Church? He said, "Uh, actually, John Major and the Queen appointed me. Had lunch with a pastor in Sweden, excuse me, Norway, and said, how did you become the pastor of this church? He said, the King of Norway appointed me. Constantinianism, and as a result of that concession to political powers, the church became enmeshed in an unholy way with politics. It weakened its impact. It did not remain distinct from the world and eventually ended up 
unable to say anything to the world. You have moral compromise, you have political compromise, you also have doctrinal compromise. That certainly was true as well. You know, the church, as it progressed throughout history, it became imbibed with all sorts of superstitions, superstitions about Mary, superstitions regarding the ability of priests to turn ordinary wine into blood, etc., etc. And grace was sacramentalized, and as a result, the reality of the gospel, God moving directly in the human heart, that all was oftentimes dissipated. But here's my question to you today. How well will we do when the pressure is on? Will we compromise? When we are told that our tax-exempt status no longer is valid unless we accept homosexual marriages, etc., etc., what happens when our faith in the workplace is compromised and you lose your job because of your witness? Are we going to be a strong church? 1985, Rebecca and I were in the People's Republic of China, and Bishop Ding, who was head of the three-self movement, that is to say the official communist-sanctioned church, told us this. He said, I know who you are. You are evangelicals. He said, if you go through the length and breadth of China, you will find people who believe like you are. And then he said this, persecution wiped out theological liberalism in China. And I thought, well, of course. You know, what liberal is going to go to the wall for Jesus and die for a human Christ? So persecution oftentimes purifies the church. Not that I'm in favor of persecution because sometimes it wipes it out, as in the case of Islam. But still, compromising churches are always weak churches. That's the second lesson. Let's go on to a third, and that is that churches must accept persecution. Churches must accept persecution as a way of life. That is important. Now, when Islam came to North Africa, as it did when it came to Turkey, what happened? First of all, as the Muslim armies, the Turks marched into these areas, first of all, people had a chance to convert They gave people an opportunity to convert to Islam. That oftentimes is a part of Islamic teaching. When we were in Jordan, perhaps 10 or 12 years ago, we had a tour guide, 22 years old, sharp young man, good-looking. And as he was talking to us about Islam and tried to convert us to the Islamic religion, I said to him, if you had enough weapons, would you overcome the United States and make all of us Muslims? He said, of course, we have no choice because Islam is supposed to rule the world. But he said, we'd give you an opportunity to convert first. So many people converted to Islam under persecution and pressure. The other object uh, option was to die, death and many chose death. You know that among the Masons, which, by the way, if you don't know, is very occultic, even though some members don't understand its occultism. Among the Masons, eventually you get to wear a red fez, which has on it the crescent, the Muslim crescent. But there is, in northern Africa, there is a city by the name of Fez, and that's why it's called a Fez. The hat is called a Fez, and it is blood red because it signifies the blood of Christians who died as a result of the coming of Islam to that city. 
So you had the option of conversion, you had the option of death, or you had the option of living as a Christian in Muslim countries. And you could do that if you would be willing to live essentially as a slave. After 9-11, I heard a man on television, a Muslim leader, say, Oh, Islam is tolerant of Christianity. In fact, Islam protects the Christians. They gave them an order of protection. So I took the time to look up the order of protection, the Omar order of protection that was agreed to with Christians who live in Muslim countries. The order of protection is really the terms of the Christian's surrender. For example, it says you cannot build houses as big as the Muslims. You cannot propagate your faith. You can't dress like Muslims. The fear was that Christians would dress like Muslims and then escape the kind of marginalization they were experiencing. You cannot repair any of your Christian buildings when they fall into disrepair. And when it comes to marriage, our men can marry your women, but you cannot do it the other way around. No Christian man is ever allowed to marry one of our Muslim girls. So with that, you also, of course, had to pay the jezia. The jezia is a fine or an excessive tax. And so if you live within that, within that sphere, you will be protected. You can live. But the whole idea is that if you violate this, we have the right to kill you. Because after all, the superiority of Islam indicates that those who live among it with with uh, a different religion have to be proven to them that they are subservient, that they have to be slaves to the Muslim religion and their rulers. But how does the church survive? In a case like that, of course, the church eventually died out because if you don't have any husbands for the Christian women, Eventually, Islam will destroy the church, and you can go through the length and breadth of North Africa and discover that it is the case. But here's the question. Are we willing to live with persecution? Last night, I emphasized that Bonhoeffer, who stood against Hitler based on Philippians 1.29, said, For unto you it is given to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his name. And we like the first part of the verse. To me it is given to believe on Christ. And we vote and we say, great. But it is also given for you to suffer in his name. The Christian church, and even in America, must, must get used to the idea that persecution has to be accepted. And that's always the way it's been through 2,000 years of church history. Sometimes I've given a lecture on the history of freedom of religion in Europe, and you find that America with its freedoms is an anomaly. This is not the way it has always been. And I could tell you stories. What if I threw this in at no extra cost? You won't even get another offering tonight. More Christians died after the Reformation because they believed that one should be baptized upon profession of faith. They rejected infant baptism. More Christians were massacred because of that than died in the persecutions of early Rome. And some of you didn't know that. Wow. So persecution has always been the way, and that's another lesson that we must learn, that Christians must accept persecution 
as a way of life. Let's go on now to a fourth lesson that we must learn. Even when the church is in the hands of the devil, even when the church is in the hands of the devil, it is still in the hands of God. Write that down. Even though it's in the hands of the devil, it is still in the hands of God. Luther is widely quoted as saying, even the devil is God's devil. I love that. The devil is God's devil, still under God's control. Now, your Bible is open. Notice what Jesus said to the church in Smyrna. This is Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give thee the crown of life. Notice this, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, but be faithful. And if you die as a martyr, I will give you the crown of life. Wow. Even though you're thrown into the hands of the devil, I have to emphasize again, you're still in the hands of God. Now, isn't that interesting that Jesus said that to the church in Smyrna? The church in Smyrna has an interesting history. Soon after Jesus wrote this letter, Polycarp, who was one of the early church fathers, is martyred there in Smyrna today, which is Izmir. If you're looking for it on the map, today it is Izmir. And uh, he was martyred there in the stadium in Izmir. But let me tell you what happened to Smyrna as recently as 1922. You can check this out. This ought to just give you goosebumps. What happened is this. After World War I, the Ottoman Empire basically collapsed. That was the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. That's, by the way, what bin Laden refers to when he says, you know, 80 years ago we had this great disgrace. It's the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. Because what happened is Turkey sided with Germany in the war. When Germany lost, Turkey, of course, lost its uh, prestige and power, and the Ottoman Empire began to crumble. Now, the head of Greece... Prime Minister of England and the Prime Minister of Greece decided that maybe we can take Turkey back and make it a Greek country again, which is what it was before the Turks came. This was turned out to be a very foolish idea, by the way. And so what they did is they marched their armies in, they brought their armies by ship there at Izmir, and they ran throughout the land. And in Hagia Sophia, the mass actually was said again even though it had been a mosque for those many centuries. And people thought, wow, this is great. It looks like Greek culture is coming back, and the Greeks will win over the Turks. But that was not to be. A man by the name of Ataturk, if you've ever been to Turkey, you know how greatly he is honored. He gets up a, an army and fights against what we would call the allies and begins to win. And uh, Turkey wins decisive battles again. I should say the Muslims win decisive battles, the Turks win the battles, and uh, there is a sense of calm because the war is over and the Turks have won. But Izmir, Smyrna, 
was really a Greek town, a Greek city, I should say, with hundreds of thousands of inhabitants. What the Turks decided to do, rather than just declare peace since they had won, they decided to retaliate. And they decided out of vengeance that they were going to destroy Smyrna once for all and get rid of the Greeks. When the wind was blowing favorably to their plans, they actually lit the city of Smyrna. After coming in, pillaging, raping, I won't go into the details, they lit the city. And now you have the flames burning high, and the people of Smyrna are trapped. And the question is, where will they die? Will they die in the fire, or will they jump into the sea and drown? Smyrna, of course, being a seaport city. They chose the sea. Thousands upon thousands were drowned. It is said that if you threw yourself into the sea to get rid of the flames, you would not even drown because the bodies were so closely put together and fallen together like logs, human bodies. Did you know that if you look at the total of what happened, if you include the fire as well as other massacres, two million people died in that Holocaust long before that word was attributed to Hitler and his evils. Wow. But here's the point. There were missionaries there, Christian missionaries. Some of them were able to escape. Some of them came back. Some of them died. When you have a tragedy like this, we have to understand that even when the church is in the hands of the devil, Jesus, of course, speaking about first century Smyrna, said, you'll be thrown into prison for 10 days, be faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life, because even when it's in the hands of the devil, it is still in the hands of God. Jesus, the Bible says, was crucified by wicked hands. And yet when it comes to die, Jesus dies and his last words are, into thy hands I commit my spirit. When wicked hands have done all that wicked hands can do, you are still in the hands of God and his hands have the final say. So the fourth lesson is when the church is in the hands of the devil, it is still in the hands of God. Lesson number five. The point of controversy between Christianity and Islam, the point of controversy is almost always the cross, the cross. Come with me to Hagia Sophia tonight. Doesn't cost you anything. No plane flight needed. We will go up to the balcony, which is a long walk because Hagia Sophia is huge. You walk and you walk and you walk and finally you get to the balcony. And when you're there, you can see where the emperor's wife used to sit. There was a special place for her. And then my Muslim guide took me around the balcony and showed me that in the original masonry, there were crosses. Because remember now, this was a Christian church, Eastern Orthodox, but Christian. And every one of them is chiseled out and defaced. And he explained that no Muslim can ever pray in the presence of a cross. The reason that the cross is abhorrent to Muslims are, first of all, uh, during the Crusades, which was a failed venture because the Crusades were run incorrectly, uh, you had the Christians fighting under the banner of the cross, which should have never happened. Would have been one thing if the standing armies of Europe had gone to liberate the Holy Land, but... It didn't turn out that way, and Christians fought under the banner of the cross. The other reason is because in the Quran, Surah 4, 
I think it's 157 to 159, says that Jesus didn't die on a cross. He wasn't put to death. They thought that they were crucifying him, but Muslims explain that they actually were crucifying somebody else. Some Muslim scholars I've read said that Judas was being crucified in the place of Jesus and so forth. This, by the way, comes to us from the Gnostic Gospels. Remember the Gnostic Gospels when we had the Da Vinci Code? These uh, mythological sayings and so forth in the Gnostic Gospels, one of them says that when Jesus was supposedly crucified, he was actually watching it happen and laughing. That's where the laughing Jesus comes from. So at any rate, the belief is that Jesus wasn't crucified, and Muslims will tell you, we honor Jesus more than you do because we think that God considered him to be so special, God wouldn't let him die, but rather took him up to heaven directly. By the way, can you answer that question? Do they honor Christ more than we do? No, they do not. Because we know that he is king of kings and lord of lords, and the fact that he died as the God-man. Here's what happened at the cross. This is very important because some of you are here who've never trusted Christ as your savior, so you need to get this. God's love wanted to redeem humanity, but could not because of God's justice. Justice would not allow God to redeem us. Love wanted to, but justice had to be satisfied. At the cross, justice was satisfied. Jesus, as the God-man, paid our debt. So justice was satisfied, so now love was free to redeem. In a sense, the cross was God's finest moment because like a kaleidoscope, all of the attributes of God were focused that day on the cross. And that's why we sing, God forbid that I should glory, right out of the scripture. God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. But in Islam, the cross is offensive. And weak, anemic, Christianity bows to the pressure. If you go to Spain and some of the hospitals throughout Europe, you'll discover that Catholic hospitals take down the crucifix so as not to offend Muslims. There was a a tour group, uh, excuse me, a, a soccer team. I have this in writing. I'm sorry, I can't recall from what country that had crosses on their on their uniforms, and because of the pressure of Muslims, they had to change their uniforms because it was an offense to Muslims. And there are two evangelical churches here in America who have taken down their crosses so as not to offend Muslims. How weak, how, what shall I say? I'll just leave it. How weak have we become? How compromising. No wonder Islam looks at us like a paper tiger and says, you know, as soon as you have a death threat, Christians will roll over and play dead. So what we need to understand is that the cross is always the point of controversy. Number six, Jesus knew, Jesus knew that every church has those who have ears and those who don't. We won't take time to read these seven lessons, but in every one of these letters, Jesus always says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. When I would read that as a boy on a farm in Canada, I thought to myself, everybody that I know has ears. What Jesus means is some people will get it and some will not. 
There is in America today, first of all, regarding Islam, a willing blindness, a commitment to being blind to the intentions and the teachings of Islam. For example, we are told that it is a peaceful religion, and uh, Americans don't understand what that means. In Islam, it means that the world is divided into two groups, the house of war, the house of peace. What they mean when they say they're a peaceful religion is that they bring Islam to countries, and that is peace. So we are today not listening, and we don't have ears to hear. We don't have ears to hear. And that's not only true in relation to Islam. It's, it's true in relationship to our political situation that we have in Washington today. People don't want to listen to contrary evidence. It was none other than Winston Churchill who said, the desire to believe something is oftentimes stronger than facts. So we want to believe something so strongly. What we need to do is to hear the words of Jesus today who tells us, be sure to repent. Be sure to turn to God. Do you today have ears to hear? Or did you come here today with your mind made up about Jesus, about Islam, an unwillingness to hear the voice of Jesus calling the church to repentance and boldness in this hour? So six, Jesus knew that every church has those who have ears and those who don't. Number seven, things are not what they appear to be. Things are not what they appear to be. Now, I mentioned to you that in Islam, military victories proves the truth of their religion. The cutting off of the head historically has been very, very important. And when you cut somebody's head off, it means that you are superior to them militarily. You prove the truth of Islam, etc., and the triumph of Islam's military might. Come with me during the time of Martin Luther. Luther was there in the little town of Wittenberg, where Rebecca and I were a couple of weeks ago. And uh, reports begin to come to him of the Turks. The Turks were overrunning various countries. They were winning victories, and they had surrounded Vienna. They surrounded Vienna twice, once during Luther's time and then about a hundred years later, and they did not capture Vienna from the Habsburgs, and that kind of ended their quest for Europe militarily. Now they are winning Europe in other ways, through population distribution, even as Osama bin Laden told them they should. So the point is that uh, what you have today is that in Luther's day, I should say, you have the Turks winning these victories and Luther is getting these reports of the number of heads that have been cut off and, and the whole bit. And so he writes a book about it. It's a short book, but it's a book about the Turks and what the Christian's reaction is to these victories. And Luther says that We must understand something, and then first of all, he speaks sarcastically. Luther liked some sarcasm. What he said is, if we look around, it seems clear that we believed in the wrong religion. I mean, we don't have these reports of the number of heads cut off or the number of countries that have been conquered. Clearly, our God must be weak. He says that with a touch of irony and then says, but what does the Christian do when he has these reports? How does a Christian handle it? And Luther said, a Christian handles it by believing God's bare 
word. You believe God's bare word that Jesus is king, Jesus will triumph. You look around and there's no evidence for it, but you believe God. Peter would say that this is the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto glory and honor and praise at the appearing of Jesus Christ. The believer believes God because things are not what they appear to be. Let me ask you something. If you were a young person and you were reading the New Testament story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus, which of the two would you like to be? Would you like to be Lazarus who's eating crumbs there and having the dogs lick his sores? Or would you like to be the rich man who was clothed in scarlet and had more than enough to eat? I mean, you know that the average American... (laughs) would easily choose, give me the rich man. But you notice how things were reversed at death. The rich man ends up in Hades, and Lazarus ends up being in paradise with Abraham. Wow, things are not what they appear to be. Let me ask you a question. I um, have in my short lifetime watched soccer only twice. One was yesterday afternoon when we arrived here. I phoned your pastor and uh, told him that we were here, and he said that he was watching a soccer game, and I thought, if Pastor Stephen watches it, I'll watch it too. So I watched it (laughs) yesterday. And then this afternoon, there was some excitement about the World Cup, and I thought, well, you know, who knows about the World Cup? I'm going to watch and watch these people kick this pumpkin back and forth and trying to figure out how to get it in a goal. Well... Let me ask you something. Tonight, if you watch the soccer game, would you like to bet a lot of money that the Netherlands are going to win? Would you like to bet money that the Netherlands are going to win? I don't think so, because the Netherlands lost. The game is over, and Spain won. Is that right, Pastor? Spain won. My dear friend... Jesus has already won. The game is over. It is finished. Don't bet on a losing team. Things are not what they appear to be. Absolutely not. The the tables are going to be reversed. Islam and Christianity have two different narratives as to how things are going to end. In Islam, the tradition is that Jesus is going to return. He's going to come to Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that the eastern gate has a cemetery in front of it. Supposedly, that's to keep him from entering. But Jesus will come to Jerusalem. He will abolish all crosses and make everyone convert to Islam. And then he's going to be buried dying a natural death and buried next to Muhammad in Mecca. That's the scenario. Christianity has a different narrative. Christianity says that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is God of very gods. And one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
That means the tongue of Baha'u'llah. It means the tongue of Muhammad. It means the tongue of Krishna. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do I have a witness here tonight? That's a whole different narrative. We do not have to win militarily in order to win in the world to come. During the days of the Boxer Rebellion in China, I read a story about the Boxers coming, wanting to rid China of all Western influence. And these people came to a Christian school and they told the students, we're putting a cross outside of the door of the school. If you step on the cross, that means you despise it, you will be allowed to live. But if you walk around the cross, honoring it will shoot you. The first eight students stood on the cross and were allowed to live. The ninth was a girl, praying that God would give her the grace to do what she knew she should. And she carefully walked around the cross and was shot, and all the other students, based on her testimony and courage, did the same thing. Was she a winner or a loser? I mean, there are people who'd say, well, you know, she should have just stepped on the cross and then told Jesus she didn't mean it. No, she is a winner. Because, my friend, time is short and eternity is long and you don't know who the winner is by looking around and by time. We know it because of the revelation of Jesus, because of his historical resurrection, his claims, and we know that he is King of kings and Lord of lords and God of gods, as I mentioned, and we know how the game is played because we've read the last chapter of the book. There's no question, but that Jesus is king. And I say to you today, who is a skeptic, or you are a Muslim, Jesus is king, God of God. And all of us must bow to him. And and what he taught was that your eternal destiny rested on whether or not you believed on him. What an amazing thing. He who believes in me is everlasting life. He who does not believe will be damned. Wow. Because he's the only one who has the qualifications of being a savior. So, things are not what they appear to be. I'm going to conclude with lesson number eight. We must prepare for the future. We must prepare for the future. What about what is happening in the world today? The best illustration of to help us of the intentions of Islam was a demonstration that I saw on television in Dearborn, Michigan, where you have a heavy Muslim population. They were having a festival and a demonstration, and somebody was carrying a sign that said, we will use the Constitution to destroy the Constitution. So their intention is to use our freedoms quietly, plead for tolerance, build a mosque close to the 9-11 site. As you know, they are going to 14 stories high. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could build a church in their country, countries? But they will use the Constitution and then in the end destroy the Constitution. What should our response be? First of all, I need to tell you 
I need to tell you with great joy in my heart that tens of thousands of Muslims are coming to faith in Christ today in Muslim countries. I was talking to a man who through the internet and other ways stays under the radar. And uh, I have talked to a number of people who are in the know, and they even believe in Iran. There could be as many as a million secret Christians. But they have to be secret, at least for a time, because as you know, if they declare their faith, they will be persecuted and many of them will be put to death. God is working mightily in the Muslim countries. I could tell you stories about Syria and Iraq. God is working mightily. We should never think to ourselves that there's no use witnessing to a Muslim because he's not interested in Jesus. Befriend your Muslim friends because they have desires for peace and for tranquility. They want to raise their families just like you do. They are ordinary people who are seeking friendship and the like. And you and I have the privilege by having them come here to America to be able to befriend them. And we don't have to shove Christianity down their throat. We have to show them the love of Christ until they begin to ask this question. Where's that love coming from? And why is it that you are able to respond to me as you are? A couple of months ago in Chicago, Rebecca and I met a, a Muslim who... Uh, who came to this country, trained in terrorism in Lebanon, came here with the intention of doing terrorism. Tragic car accident broke his neck. He was loved on by three Christian doctors. They didn't uh, try to convert him necessarily. But when he got out of the hospital, he was in deep convulsion. He said, how is it that they love me and love me? He says, we are taught hate. You know, in the Quran, three times it says that the Jews are pigs and apes, and we were taught to chant that. And he says, here, these infidels, these Christians, all that they do is love. So he went to his room, and finally he cried out to God and said, Allah, are you there? Dead silence. He cried up and said, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are you there? And he heard a voice. Let us never underestimate what God is willing to do for those who are desperate to find him. He was led to a Christian, to a Bible where he heard the gospel and was converted. And that's what's happening with these dreams. People say, well, how come... These dreams are converting people. The dreams awaken within their minds the truth about Jesus, and then God leads them to the Word of God, to a Christian, to a Christian broadcast where they hear the gospel and they are converted, and it is happening all throughout the Middle East. So let us be encouraged. And then I want to say a word to the young people who are present, which is really all of us if we're willing to stretch it a little bit. <laughs> At Moody Bible Institute, there was a man who came to give us a lecture on Sharia law. His specialty was Islamic law, converted to Christ. And so he gave us this lecture, which he wouldn't even allow us to tape, which was interesting, it was chilling. 
I saw him later in, a, in the coffee shop there at Moody, and I said, let's have coffee, coffee together. And uh, in the process, we were discussing what should we do, and he didn't really have an answer that I thought was really too good. I didn't have an answer. And so I finally said, you know, we're going to have to train the next generation to be willing to die for the faith. And he took his finger and he pointed it into my chest like that and said, exactly, that's what God is calling you to do. It's to train the next generation to be willing to die for the faith. I thought, I don't remember that as part of my job description when I came to Moody Church. (laughs) Young people, after some of us are dead and gone, You are going to be living in a generation where it may be necessary for you to be willing to die for the faith. But if you do, and please read the biographies of martyrs, read Bonhoeffer's new biography that just came out a couple of months ago, one of my great heroes. Read these and ask yourself, and read the Bible, and you think of the martyrs there, you think of... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are willing to die for the faith and ask yourself, what is it that gave them the stamina to live for Christ no matter what the consequences were? And those are the values and the strength that we must build into the lives of our young people because the days of the easy ride here in the United States, I believe, are going to soon be over Blessed are you, Jesus said, when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And Jesus said on one occasion, he said, do not fear them which are able to destroy the body. And after that, there's nothing they can do. They've run out of ideas. All that they've done is kill you. Don't fear them, but fear him rather who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. What I'm saying is we need Christians who can love, but Christians who are tough because they know that eternity is coming and Jesus is the victor. No matter where you're at here, I want you to bow your head now as we pray. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus is victor, that he is Lord, that he is God. We thank you. And we thank you today that he is king of kings. Birth within us the ability to live for him in the midst of our situation without compromise, loving, but also strong in faith. We pray for the next generation, and we pray for the Muslims in America and throughout the world. We ask, Lord Jesus, that they shall experience freedom, help them to be willing to actually open a Bible and read it, And use your holy word, Father, to show them the truth of the gospel. Thank you for the tens of thousands and millions that are being converted today. May we be optimistic and joyful, knowing that you call us to represent you in today's world, we pray. And now before I close this prayer, you have to pray. What is it that God told you? You may be here today and you've never trusted Christ as Savior. You may be here as a seeker and God has spoken to you. You talk to God right now. Father, complete the work in us that you desire. Don't let us go until you've blessed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.